beginning our study in depth of Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, turn open to Mark's Gospel. Uh, if you need a Bible, you can borrow one in front of you, and you want to turn to page 836. Page 836 in the Pew Bible. Well, in our introduction to Mark's Gospel last week, we made the case that on the one hand, Jesus is probably one of the most well-known figures in history, but ironically, Jesus is also one of the most mysterious figures in history. This is not only true of Jesus, but I think we can make the case that this is true of God, God, the gospel itself. And I, I don't necessarily just mean the content of the gospel, but I mean actually the word I use. So when I say gospel, what do you think I'm referring to? Now, obviously, context has a lot to do with it, because in this setting, you're naturally thinking, well, you're obviously referring to a book of the Bible, in this case, the Gospel of Mark. But if we change the setting and say I'm in a kind of a music hall or music ceremony, and I say gospel, what am I referring to? Right? It would be something that gospel music, a style of music, Kirk Franklin or Andre Crouch or BB and CC Winans. I could even be referring to the content of something, as in, did that preacher preach the gospel? And I could be referring to something that has nothing to do with the Bible. I could just be using gospel as a certainty of fact, then saying, hey, you can believe this, this is gospel, right? So whenever we study the Bible, the question to be asked is not necessarily what do we think the word means, but the real question is, what did the original people think the word meant when they heard it? And when they heard the word gospel, I mean, for sure they weren't thinking of Andre Crouch and a style of music. They weren't even thinking a biblical book. They weren't even thinking Jesus Christ. When the readers of Mark's gospel read gospel, what they were thinking about was really important, headline-worthy, world-changing news. It meant something important. Now, you could say, well, that's what we mean by it too, but we have a certain kind of specific use of why it's important. Back then, you could have said, hey, have you heard the gospel? What? The Patriots won the Super Bowl again, right? That would have been an appropriate use of the word. They could have said, have you heard the gospel? The new emperor, Caesar Augustus, was born. That's the gospel. As a matter of fact, that's exactly how they use the word. In describing Caesar's rule, um, just a few years before Mark's gospel was written, in 9 BC throughout Asia was written this particular decree talking about Caesar and his rule. This is the gospel of Caesar. It said this, Caesar has restored the shape of everything that was failing and turning into misfortune and has given a new look to the universe at a time of its destruction if Caesar had not been born to the common blessing of all men. Providence has sent him, as it were, a savior for us all. So when the original hearers of Mark's gospel heard the word gospel, they weren't thinking of Jesus Christ. Among other things, they were thinking about Caesar Augustus and the rule of Rome. That's why I love Mark's gospel. I love it because Peter's punchy personality comes right out in the very first sentence of the gospel when he says, this is the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter implicitly, you know, Peter was the source of Mark's gospel, was saying, hey, you think Augustus, you think Caesar, you think a man is your hope? Let me tell you something, that is not our hope. I love how Peter, right out of the gate, is challenging the beliefs of his day. He says, let me tell you about the real king, the real savior of us all. And so he puts gospel front and center to kind of show you the difference between the emphasis. Mark doesn't even mention the word gospel till the end of chapter four. 
Luke doesn't say the word gospel till Luke chapter 9, and John never mentions the word. So right out of the gate, you see the personality of the source of this gospel, and he's like, I am going to challenge the way the world thinks about these things. I'm going to challenge their salvation hope, their, their political hope, their, their social hope, that it's supposed to be Rome and Caesar Augustus. No, 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 no. Let me tell you about the real king. His name is Jesus, and I'm going to explain to you what his rule is like. That is the thrust of Mark chapter 1. Now, for those of you more, more creative types, maybe some of you out here are writers, and certainly some of you have bloggers here, you kind of know any good uh, literature has all these, it's, it's thick, right? And I don't mean like many pages, I mean just the substance is there. There's all these subplots and narrative arcs that are very intriguing, which is why you can read great literature over and over again, and you go, wow, I didn't realize this was there, and it reinforces the story. Well, Mark's gospel is no different. But, but when I was thinking about it this week, there's probably about five sermons I have right from God, Mark chapter 1. But what would happen is we would lose the forest for the trees. So you may be thinking, why are we going to talk more about John the Baptist? Or why don't you unpack this a little bit more? And I could, but I'm deliberately not going to because I want us to see the thrust of this amazing chapter that introduces this amazing gospel. And the thrust of this chapter is that... Mark wants to show that Jesus and his kingdom is challenging, not just the ancient world, but the modern world's understanding of, of hope and salvation. And we're going to note four things in this one chapter, and they are this, understanding the nature of the gospel kingdom itself, and, and really, I'm going to fly past that point, because even though there's a lot of amazing things in it, I just want to, as Mark is doing, setting up for the following three points. After that, recognizing that the king is here. This is the central kind of part of Mark's, Mark 1, responding to the king, then the results of his kingdom and your place in it. Now, if you're a note taker, you don't have to like be running, writing all those down, because we're going to look at them one at a time. Number one, understanding the nature of of the gospel kingdom itself. So Mark says, Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. Okay, we'll stop right there real quick. You, you can see how we could just per spend forever unpacking this, but I want to get to this is that notice what Mark is doing. He's saying the beginning of the gospel and yes, I think he's meaning the beginning of his gospel, but as any good writer, he's using a couple of meanings of that. The beginning of the gospel, and notice, what does he immediately do? He goes to the Old Testament. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then he starts quoting a kind of combination of Malachi 3.1, Isaiah 40, uh, verse 3, and then, and then actually even Malachi quotes Exodus 23.20, and he puts all this together and talks about this amazing forerunner that's going to come and introduce God's, God's king to bring in God's kingdom. And, and that forerunner is none other than John the Baptist. But, but we're just going to skip over that because while John's amazing, I want to look to what really Mark wants to get at, and that is this. If, if this new kingdom is anything like this king that we're going to learn about real quick, then we're into, we're gonna, this is something completely different. This is totally different than anything the world has ever known. And in five short verses, verses 9 through 13, Mark is demonstrating that on the one hand, how Jesus is both completely unlike us. There is nothing like him ever. And yet at the same time, 
He represents us and succeeds where humanity has failed. And Mark does that by just showing briefly two important uh, narratives, Jesus' baptism and then Jesus being sent into the woods to be tempted, the wilderness. If you read the other Gospels, they make a much more bigger deal of that. They really unpack Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. They really unpack Jesus' baptism. But because they have a different emphasis, Mark wants to get to the action. But because it's so important, he does mention it, but he just passes by it. So we need to do the same thing. And you know what happens at Jesus' baptism, right? Verse 10, you can look at it in the passage. As soon as Jesus comes out of the water, three amazing things happen that the original readers would have known. Hey, man, this is all pointing to what the Old Testament was saying, God ushering in his kingdom. So the first thing was, it says that he came out of the water and the heavens were torn open, right? So, so who has a Bible that it says the heavens were torn open? Raise your hand. Let's see, let's see what I'm, okay. Who has a Bible that just says that the heavens were opened? Raise your hand. Okay, so, so here it is. Um, and it both could be the ESV. And what I love about it is the ESV, they recognize that it's the same word in the Greek, torn open and open. The only other time that expression of being torn open appears was at the end of Mark's gospel, chapter 15 and verse 38, when when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn open, and immediately the Gentile centurion says, this was the Son of God. And so the translators, some of our ESVs, it used to say just open, and they realize after they publish it, that's the problem with print, right? That's why the digital app, I love it, they keep tweaking with it. They realize, wait a minute, the only time this construction happens is that at the end of the gospel, when the centurion, the, this Gentile, this total, has no connection to the gospel, recognizes this is the Son of God, the only other time Mark uses it is at the very front when Jesus is introduced as the Son of God. And so the idea being is Mark was using a literary device to say, see, on the front end, he's the Son of God, and at the very end, he's the Son of God. That's who I'm telling you about in this gospel message. But more importantly, so, so they change that slightly. So if you ever look at it and go, it doesn't say torn open. It says open. I'm not making stuff up. I'm telling you why it's that way, right? But to the point, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 64.1 was saying, basically, the Messiah will tear open the heavens and come down and bring his kingdom with him. And so Mark is tapping into Isaiah's vision of the heavens being torn open and the Messiah coming. And secondly, what do we see in the baptism of Jesus? I think it's still verse 10. That the Spirit of God descended. Notice it says like a dove, right? Because we see these Jesus movies and there's this white dove. It says like a dove. It didn't say he was a dove. But like a dove, the Spirit of God came into Jesus, signifying that this this. this this unique individual is not operating in his own power, but the power of the Almighty. And then finally, the voice is heard, right? These three things happen. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Remember, several weeks ago, we talked about this amazing section in the prophet Isaiah called the Servant Songs. This comes from that passage. It's a combination of Isaiah 42 and, uh, excuse me, 49.6 and 42.1. The point being, Everyone reading this would have said, what in the world? Three of these events are indicative that this is how God's ushering is in kingdom, and it's being recorded of this one man, Jesus Christ. And then immediately, Mark's passage says in verse 12, immediately, excuse me, verse 11, he was sent out into the wilderness to be tempted, right? And again, Matthew unpacks that. Mark blows past that, but here's the point. This unique individual, this, this anointed one, empowered by God, the Son of God himself, completely different, ushering in the kingdom of God, totally unlike us, yet 
He is sent to do what every man, woman, and child is supposed to do but fails at in the wilderness, obedience to God or succumb to darkness. He was being tempted. We see that as far back as Genesis 3 in the first representatives of humanity, Adam and Eve, submission, obedience to God or succumb to darkness, and that's what they did. We see that in the, the replacement of Adam and Eve to represent humanity, the nation of Israel. And Deuteronomy 8.2 tells us, no, they did not choose obedience to God. They succumbed to darkness. And we not only see that in, in, in Adam and Eve and in Israel as a people, every king, every prophet, every priest failed. And so just in these five verses, Mark is setting this up saying, here's this being that's unlike anyone else, empowered by God himself, yet he's representing us Where we fail, he prevails. This one's fit to be king, which is exactly why the first words that Mark ascribes to Jesus are right here in verse 15. Let's take a look at it. Now, after John was arrested, verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So important is this one verse. This is the hinge point of the entire chapter. Everything else we talk about in this chapter stems from what Jesus says right here. The three things Jesus says. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel message. I just love how Mark just gets right into what Jesus is about. And we'll look at those. those are the, that's going to be the rest of the shape of our sermon today, our message today. And Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. Another way to say that, things are ready. Friends, just as a side note, the Christian worldview of history views history with a definite beginning, middle, and end. Now, you, to many of you, might, you might think, well, that's just obvious, but that's not very obvious in the world around us, especially if you read and you know what's going on in our universities, this postmodern mindset that, that history is nothing more than an endless succession of events, one thing happening after the other. There's no real rhyme or reason. There's no discernible stop or start. It's just going round and round and round. There's no purpose to it, so make up your own purpose. There's no destination, so you choose your own destination. That's part of what Jackie was talking about. Part of what's fueling that is a view that there's no point to it all, so make your own point. But the Christian worldview says history has an origin and history has a conclusion. And Jesus punctuates that. He says, the time is ready. The time is fulfilled. And it's not just Jesus that says that. If you're a note taker, write down Galatians 4.4. 4. Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So Paul says it, Jesus says it. So when they say the time's ready, what are they referring to? When, when they say the time is fulfilled, things are ready, what are they getting at? And this is where we need to step back and when you think about what was going on at that precise moment in, in history, there was a, an intersection of events unlike ever before or since. Just think culturally. Culturally, the then known world shared a common language and a common culture. That doesn't mean there was only one culture and one language, but that there was a shared language. It was the lingua franca of the day, it was Greek. And they had a shared cultural heritage, which was also Greek. These things were called Hellenism. Does anybody know why Hellenism spread everywhere and it became the dominant culture and language of the time? 
Oh, yes, good history buff. Three centuries prior to this, a man by the name of Alexander the Great dominated the ancient world and spread Hellenism with it. And so everyone, while maintaining their own local dialect, their own language, had to teach or understand Greek. While everyone had their own culture, Hellenism spread to be the majority culture. So everyone understood its values, priors, uh, desires, and priorities. So culturally, there was a shared language and a shared culture. Or, yeah, very important. Politically, at the time that the gospel was written, the dominant power was the Romans. And they made two important contributions to history. Number one, among others, was the Pax Romana, right? The Roman peace. And the Roman peace was pretty effective because it went like this. If you step out of line at all, we're going to kill you. Okay? So that tends to maintain the peace. But on top of the Pax Romana, the Romans developed the most sophisticated road system in all of antiquity. The Roman roads were by far, hand over fist, superior to any other kind of road system, and it stretched not just from Italy, it went to Greece, all of Europe, into the Mediterranean, North Africa, and as far as London, and even further north. In Syria and Palestine alone, the Romans built thousands of miles of roads. So with the Pax Romana, you could travel anywhere in the then-known world in relative safety. Because of the Hellenism of Alexander the Great, everyone could understand each other at some level and shared same cultural values and heritage. But spiritually, something really unique had taken place as well. In Israel, the problem of idolatry was finally broken amongst the Jewish people. Now, if you've read your Bible, what's the biggest problem of the Jews in the Old Testament? They're idolatry. Everything you're reading is about their fact that they're always giving their hearts to other gods and following after other gods. Well, guess what broke them of that? God's discipline in the exile. After the exile, after the Assyrians and Babylonians dragged off the people of Israel and scattered them all over what's called the diaspora, all over the ancient Mediterranean, and in God and His kindness, this is what Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Malachi are all about. He brought them back to His people. They've caught the, they learned the lesson. They said, oh, not going to forsake God anymore. That was horrible. By the way, guys, God's discipline is always good. Hebrews 12 says, at, at the time it seems painful, but those who are trained by it get the fruit of righteousness. So the Jews realized no more idolatry. But what had happened while they were in exile is that they created the synagogue system, right? The synagogue systems didn't exist in the Old Testament. They didn't need it. They had Israel. They had the temple. But when they were scattered everywhere and had no temple, what did they have to do? They wanted to continue to teach Torah. They wanted to worship Yahweh. So they built the synagogue system everywhere. What that provided the early Christians, by the way, was a ready audience and a place to go everywhere in the ancient world, right? But furthermore, Ezra, from the book of Ezra, the scribe, had compiled the Old Testament in the form we have it today. So we have this cultural intersection with political intersection, with spiritual realities all coming together. So note with me, so we have the language to communicate, the means to communicate, and the content to communicate, all at an intersection at this point in time. Friends, it's no coincidence that John's gospel calls Jesus what in chapter one? The Word. Because Jesus says it's time for the Word to spread. And the means is there, the language is there, and the content is there. The time is fulfilled. The world is ready for the gospel. And friends, just step, taking a step back here, 
What's true of our collective history is true of us personally. Our lives are not this endless succession of events that have no meaning or a meaning determined by our own selves. There is a point and purpose to every single person in this room because it's been ascribed to you by your Creator. Friend, maybe what you need to do is see your life in the larger frame of God's redemptive picture for humanity. I hope you feel that there's more to life than get up, go to work, come home, run errands, do the chores, study if you're a student, go to sleep, rinse and repeat. Now, your your pattern might be different, but you get the point. I hope you feel there's got to be more to this than that. I hope you know that the horizon of life extends beyond the things we fill our time with. Because, friends, if, if you don't, you can only feel a sense of despair. You feel it. You must know it. And the only way you get that meaning is by plugging into the one who gives meaning to all those things. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, every one of us, our lives have a meaning. And Jesus says, the time is ready. Are you ready? Are you ready to respond to the gospel? It says, the time is ready. Things are fulfilled. Repent and believe in the gospel. So I want to take a look at that last phrase. I want to skip over the, the middle phrase and jump into the last phrase because that's the response. When he says the kingdom of is at hand, he's just expounding on how the time is fulfilled. So I want to jump to the response that Jesus is expecting from people. And we see that in his phrase, repent and believe in the gospel. That's so the question we should be asking is, well, what, 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 what then does that look like? If you've been a Christian, you hear that stuff all the time. Repent and believe the gospel. What does that look like? Well, thankfully, Mark gives us an illustration in the very next verse, verse 16. After Jesus issues this statement, Mark writes this, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 19, and going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So what does it look like to repent and believe in the gospel? Mark in, in James and John, Simon and Andrew gives us an object lesson of what repentance and belief looks like. We just saw it right there. They heard Jesus' call, and they left everything behind to answer it. You see that? I mean, you see how Mark set that up? Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. And here's a great example of what that looks like. Now, you might be reading that. You might be thinking, well, come, come on. <laughs> That's got to be the exception, right? Not the rule. I mean, pff, does Jesus really expect that we leave everything? I mean, leave our livelihood, the security of family, and just like wander after him like some kind of Bedouin nomad kind of preaching caravan? Well, maybe that last part, not so much, right? But in principle, I don't want to answer that. You see, you can tell by the tone of my voice what I think the answer is. That doesn't matter. What does the Bible actually teach about this? 
So let's go to the Bible and find out. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 34. So if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 844. Does, does Jesus really expect that we do what James and John and Andrew and Simon have done? That's what he says in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. And Jesus called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Now, obviously, in case you've forgotten, Jesus talking about a cross, it wasn't nice jewelry, right? It was a tool of execution that he was saying, you must pick up and follow after him. So, at least according to Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35, Jesus seems to be pretty serious about what it means to be his disciple. But maybe, maybe Peter, who recorded this and, and later related to Mark, maybe Peter misunderstood. Let's go to another disciple and see how they understood what Jesus said. So, for that, let's go to Matthew, Matthew's gospel, chapter 10. Again, if you're using a pew Bible, go to page 815. So we know how Peter interpreted Jesus' statement and related it to Mark. Let's see how Matthew has interpreted Jesus. Uh, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 38. This is what Matthew records. And whoever does not take his cross, Jesus says, and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Apparently, Jesus does expect that you leave everything behind. If you want to be his disciple, it's clear Jesus expects you leave everything. Your livelihood, your family, and whatever else you might be clinging to, if it comes to that. Let me let you off the hook a little bit. It's very few of us that it will come to that. There are very few people in this world that will have to make that kind of decision but the question is, the question remains, if it was asked of you, would you? Now, I know in a church, you got to at least be thinking, if not saying out loud, we're not that kind of a church. But you're thinking, of course I would, right? Because I'm a Christian, and that's what the Bible says, so that's what I'm going to do. So let, let's do this. Let's take something out of the abstract and significant which we all would like to say in those heroic moments, I would leave everything for you, Lord, and let's bring it down to the more subtle and maybe more mundane and see if the principle plays out. What about when you're at the office or you're at school? Maybe somebody in the pew next to you offends you somehow. We are a very sensitive culture, right? They just say something and offended you or ignored you, didn't, didn't pay attention to you, snubbed you, whatever it might be. You, you fill in the blank. Uh, I'm part of the culture you are. I know there's enough things that we could get offended at and ign feeling ignored by. You fill in the blank. Are you a disciple of Christ enough to leave behind your sense of need to be recognized and respected? Can you leave behind the feeling that, that of entitlement that you feel like, I should be recognized after all, or why did they say such a thing to me? Who do they think they are? Can you leave that behind? More to the point, can you then do what Jesus does, who did that all the time, forgave people of their offenses and forgave people for ignoring him and betraying him, but yet even loved them and cared for them despite being offended by them, legitimately or not? 
Can you do that? That shows us our discipleship. Let me put it another way, maybe not, maybe not a negative way, but let me put it in something positive to show how our discipleship in Christ doesn't just flourish or come out in the difficulty of life, the crucible of life, but oftentimes can come out even in the blessings and the opportunities of life. And your boss calls you in and says, I want to give you the promotion or you have a chance of better pay, but here's the reality. I need you to put in more hours. You just need to put your nose to the grindstone, and that promotion's yours, and that'll leave you no time, you're thinking in your mind, as you're thinking through this opportunity, that leaves you no time for fellowship or to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Can you walk away from that? Short-term loss, but a long-term gain, but needless to say, can you walk away from that and trust that God, Christ will somehow provide that your career will be okay, I'm going to trust Jesus for this. Friends, obviously as a pastor, um, it is true that sin does keep people away from the corporate gathering on Sunday mornings, but I find more often than not, it's not sin, it's just something better came along in their mind. And there's all kinds of ways, 10,000 ways we rationalize it, but the net result is the same. That's where our discipleship plays out. Now, some of you might be a little bit more self-aware and say, well, you're, you're thinking, look, even if I wanted to leave everything, and I'm not quite sure I do, but even if I wanted to, I'm not even sure how, what that looks like. How do I even do that? Turn to Philippians chapter 3. I think Paul has something that might be very helpful for us to hear. Philippians chapter 3. I know, what kind of church makes you turn all those? I could put the verse on the screen. I know I could do that. But I'm going to make you turn there and get familiar with your Bible. So Philippians chapter 3, if you're looking at a pew Bible, it's page 981. Listen to what Paul, who was the cream of the crop of his culture, right? A Pharisee among the Pharisees. He'd be like a, a Harvard professor, seven-figure salary, well-known, well-respected kind of guy. But then he met Jesus, and this is what he had to say. But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. The, past, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So Paul says the secret to be able to walk away from it all is to know the surpassing worth of Christ, he says. The secret to walk away from it all is the surpassing worth of Christ. In other words, friends, if you knew that tomorrow afternoon someone was going to give you $20 million, you're not going to sweat the 10 bucks you got in your pocket today, are you? Right? If you knew that less than 24 hours, $20 million was going to be just given to you, you were not going to be chintzy with that, oh man, I got 10 bucks right now and I got to buy dinner and I need to buy, buy a new coat and then I want to see that movie, so I'm holding on to this 10 bucks. If you, if you actually saw somebody and they said, yeah, I'm going to get 20 million tomorrow, but I only got 10 bucks today, so I can't loan you five, or you know, I got to get, get the most out of this 10, you would say they're an idiot. Right? I'm just saying what you're all thinking. By the way, it's not just tomorrow, March 4th. It'll be March 4th every year. You get 20 million more. But how many of us live our lives that way? And, and don't just think finances, right? This is not a plea to give more when the tithe plate comes around. That's not what I'm getting at. How many of us just live our lives that way? And the Bible says, look, you've got an inheritance. Peter says, imperishable 
glorious. How many of us are just chinsing on the 10 bucks we got now? Paul says the secret to walk away from it all is know the surpassing value of Christ. But I, but I, I, want, I want you to notice something real important here. Notice what Paul says, because what we're not trying to say is holiness and piety means poverty and giving your money away. We're not trying to say, like Paul said, I lost it all. Hey, but you know what? I'm holy, so well, that's cool. You know, I don't have anything, but hey, now I'm a holy, pious guy. That's not what he's getting at. Notice what Paul says. I count everything as loss, because in comparison... It's nothing to the value I have gained. So the real question of our discipleship is, are you willing to lose anything so you can gain everything? That's the question. Friends, Christian discipleship never, never teaches self-denial as an end in itself. Christianity does not teach self-denial simply because there's something inherently righteous about self-denial. Truth of the matter is, that could lead to just a lot of self-righteousness if you're just self-denying yourself all the time. You say, I did it, you could do it too. No, rather, Jesus teaches, he's trying to teach us to let go of the things that we so tightly gripped in this world. He says, let go of them so that your hands can be empty to receive greater treasures. And again, I'm not talking money, folks, so don't misunderstand me. Jesus is saying, stop holding on to these things that you think give you life. I can give it to you. Just trust me. Let go. So the question is, is in order for this to happen, friends, we have got to trust him. Notice I didn't say believe him. I didn't say believe him. Belief is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Let me say that again. Belief is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Friends, it's not about believing God. Everyone believes in God. And I've done a lot of debates with atheists, and I'm always kind of concerned why someone who totally doesn't believe in someone hates them a lot. Doesn't quite make sense to me, right? Nobody is a true atheist. We all believe. James 2.19 says the demons believe. The issue isn't whether you believe or not. Remember, friends, our study of Jonah, the unregenerate heart of man, the the key signature of the unregenerate heart, the non-Christian, is not that they don't believe in God. Everyone believes in God. It's everywhere. The evidence is that we don't trust Him. That's the difference between a Christian, or should be, between a Christian and someone who's not. It's not whether or not you believe in God, but the Christian trusts enough to let go. That's the question we have to ask. Can I let go of these things? Because God's got something better. Let me give uh, Lewis the last word on this. I've been reading his works lately. It's just beautiful what he says. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite, infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Man, we could stop right there, but we've got to go. One last phrase to look at from verse 15. We've talked about when Jesus says the time is now, 
repent and believe. But let's look at that little phrase when he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And just like verses 16 to 20 explain what repentance and belief is like, verses 21 to the rest of the chapter explains what the kingdom of God is like. And so we see all these pictures. We can't look at all of them, but they're amazing. Number one, we see that darkness is undone. You remember all the the demonic that were being cast out. All the misery that the demons and the darkness brings are undone. Weakness is overcome. You remember Simon's mother-in-law and all the sick and infirm were being brought to Jesus, and that weakness was being overcome. Illness and physical infirmities of this life are overcome by the new life and strength in Christ in the gospel. And then finally, impurity is reversed. The most vivid example gets the most attention. Let me just read it to you, verses 40. I'll just read 40 in a couple of the verses. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will... You can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And I love it. He was so overjoyed by what Jesus has done. He actually disobeyed Jesus. Jesus told him, don't tell people what I've done for you, but he just went around telling everybody what Jesus had done for him. And I love that. Friends, the power of the gospel is unimaginable. And this interaction between the leper brings out, it's so shocking because did you notice what happened when Jesus touched the leper? The leprosy did not spread to Jesus, which is why everyone was deathly afraid of lepers, which is why if you were a leper, you were outcast and living alone because your impurity would spread. When Jesus touches impurity, impurity doesn't come to Jesus, purity goes to the impure. And this man is immediately made clean. So Mark concludes this chapter simply and says, look, you, you want to see what the kingdom of God is like? You want to know what it's like? Here it is. Darkness is undone. Weakness overcome. Impurity reversed. Friends, I'm going to ask you for a couple more minutes because I've got more to say and I'm running out of time, but just a couple more minutes here. Look, we just got to ask, is there darkness in your life that has to be overcome? Is there impurity that needs to be reversed? Is there weakness that needs to be overcome by the power of the gospel? You might say, yeah. But how's that happen? So let's talk to the heart here because we have, if we're going to have, if this passage is going to have any traction or power in our lives, we have to answer this one last question I think Mark wants us to ask. Who do you think Mark wants you to see yourself as in this story? Who do you think Mark wants you to see yourself as? I think most people are naturally going to go to the disciples, of course, verses 16 and 20. After all, we should look at James and John and Andrew and Simon because they're disciples, and isn't that what we're supposed to be? Look, can we be honest? How? How in the world do we leave family? How How in the world do I walk away from income and livelihood and the security of the things around me and just follow after Jesus without knowing exactly what he wants to do? And most of you know we can't. And this is why we see so many people professing Christ, but so little of a transformed life. And do you know why? It's because we're misreading Mark. See, Mark knows who you are. Do you? Mark knows who you are. You are the leper. You are the leper in verse 40 to 45. 
See, if you think you are the disciples, then you will view the Christian life through a lens of moralism that you gotta hear Jesus and somehow by your own strength, pull yourself up by the moral bootstraps and just follow after him regardless and just bear it out. But if you know you're the leper, you view the Christian life through the lens of the power of the gospel. That's what it takes when you know you are literally falling apart, when you are the walking dead, when you know you are doomed to be forsaken because of your impurities and you're damned because there's nothing you can do about it. You, like the leper, you come before the Lord and you beg and you plead. You say, if you can, make me clean. And Jesus says, I will. You be clean. And he touches them and he brings them up. Friends, that's the gospel. Until you see yourself as the leper of verse 40 to 45, you cannot be the disciple, verse 16 to 20. You don't have the motivation. You don't have the understanding. It's just moralism. But until you see, that's me. I'm the one that's falling apart. I'm the one that's impure. I'm the one that's outcast. I'm the one that's becoming deformed and disgusting. But this is the power of sin. This is why we don't get it, friends. This is why leprosy in the Bible is the metaphor for sin. Because sin, like leprosy, numbs us. And we don't feel forsaken. We don't feel when we're falling apart. We don't feel damaged or we don't feel deformed. We don't feel disgusting until it's too late. But when you're a leper, you, there's, no, there's no fake in the funk. You know you got problems. You imagine him looking at Jesus Maybe his, his leg is such a stump he can't even stand, so he's just there and he, see, and he lifts up the bandage from his eye that's holding the pus out and as he pulls back, a tuft of hair comes out and he's looking at Jesus through his corrupted, uh, decaying hand with the nails have fallen out, the scabs have dried out, and he's looking at Jesus through the last bits of hair he just pulled out of his forehead. He says, I don't want to be falling apart anymore. I don't want to be unclean. I don't want to be forsaken. I want someone to touch me. Can you make me clean? And Jesus says, yeah, I can make you clean. And in an instant, he's made whole. Can you imagine him? Maybe he's 25. He's been this way since he's 15. He's made whole. <laughs> and he can't stop himself. Jesus says, no, keep it down. He says, I got to tell everyone. He runs off. And I like to think that there's Jesus kind of laughing. Man, telling him, God, dude, don't you know? You got to wait till Mark 8. Oh, well, forget it. I'll talk to him later, you know? Jesus, this kid, this guy runs off. And Jesus is just laughing because he knows this is what I'm about. This is what I'm about. And this guy now gets it. And the great thing is, Mark says, this is just the beginning of the gospel. Mark says, this is just the beginning, folks. The kingdom of God and the power of God are real and comprehensive and available to all. But in order for you to be a disciple, you first got to say, I'm a leper. I get it. And for all who will say, Jesus, can you make me clean? He says, I will. And that's what Mark 1 is about. Let's pray. And Father, we, we come before you because we, first of all, thank you for Mark and Peter and just the gospel and Lord, I ask that you forgive us because I know it's easy to forget. It goes against our sense of self to say I'm a leper, but we are. And until we know that in our bones, we will never look to Jesus with the pure, unadulterated cry to be delivered from the disgusting, deforming power of sin.
unless we see that we're always going to look to your son as a means to an end of something else, to make our lives the way we want it to be, to give us something rather than just to make us clean. Father, would you in your mercy open our eyes like you did to this leper, that we would see Jesus as the one that makes us clean, that reverses our impurity, overcomes our darkness, and undoes our illnesses and weakness so that we, like the leper, can with joy leave it all behind because we realize it was nothing to leave behind at all in comparison to what we have gained. Holy Spirit, that cannot happen simply because we want it to. That is a gift from you to us, so we ask that you'd give it to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.